prayer ministry team that prays with people after service because individuals uh, have particular needs and um, those individuals we want to make sure that they're praying in a manner that is reflective of our understanding about prayer here at Beth Ariel. On the one hand, it seems to be a simple thing. You know, let's just pray for one another. But like all seemingly simple things, they're actually very complicated because they're all different perspectives on prayer. And we need to learn, you know, from our mistakes when people have not been helped by our coming together with them for prayer, though that was our intention. And sometimes we find that, in the, that individuals in these prayer ministry teams offend others rather than help others. So we want to learn from those mistakes so we do less of that and more of the helping. So that's what all this is about. We want to relaunch this thing so that uh, after service we can say, hey, meet with whoever, you know. And, um, and so that we're, we're praying for people particularly. So we want to have some guidelines about that as we've gone through our study on prayer. So tonight we're going to start some controversial issues regarding uh, prayer. And, um, and hopefully this will, will set us in uh, a more uh, forward uh, process in this. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening, the opportunity we have to study your word and reflect on its, its, the, your word's uh, significance and meaning. And we just pray you'll give us open hearts and minds and clarity of thought as we investigate your word uh, this night. May our congregation truly be a congregation of individuals who are praying for one another, praying your will and praying, Father, that uh, your um, ways would be manifest in the lives of our people as well as in our society and in our community. So may your blessing rest upon us and may you guide us this night by your spirit for we ask in Messiah's name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to start. And I'm sorry I didn't have the, the outlines the way I'd like to have them for you like I had, but as I said, my computer just went on me, and I'm really not sure what's going on with that. If anybody needs paper, I have paper. Does everybody have a sheet? Do you have the other? Okay, everyone's good? All right, here we go. So the first thing I want to uh, discuss, or at least present to you, is what we hear in many, what occurs in many uh, congregations, many churches, where there's this notion of binding and loosing. Um, it's very charismatic stuff. It's very typical in the Pentecostal world and in the Pentecostal uh, community. Nothing against Pentecostal churches. As I said, I'm not trying to, to uh, critique what goes on out there. I'm only interested in presenting what we are about here, but that's the context. Uh, of this. And in Matthew chapter 16, as well as in Matthew chapter 12, these two passages are sort of uh, looked at in light of this idea that we can bind Satan or we can loose uh, God's blessings on people by, I'm really not sure what it is other than saying some words, we bind you or we loose you. Um, but let's just take a look at these two passages. In Matthew chapter 12, let me just read the, these passages, then we'll look at some of my thoughts on it. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, 
Um, Yeshua says, and the, the servants ask him, do you want us to go? Well, let me come back. Uh, Yeshua told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed uh, good. Oh, I'm, I'm in chapter 13. I'm thinking this doesn't make sense. Chapter 12. Of course, Matthew chapter 12 is perhaps the most important chapter in the gospel of Matthew because this is the uh, passage where the nation of Israel commits the unpardonable sin uh, in rejecting Yeshua's claims as the Messiah. And as a consequence, the 70 AD judgment on Israel and on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is is then promised and anticipated. Judgment is going to fall. And so in uh, chapter 12, um, verse 25, Yeshua knew their thoughts and he said, every kingdom divide because they accused uh, Messiah of doing his miracles by the power of the chief of demons. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, not even just a normal demon, but the prince of demons, that this fellow, Yeshua, drives out demons. Of course, you know the context. Uh, a man is brought to Messiah who is blind and mute. He can't see, he can't speak, and Yeshua heals him. And in verse 23, all the people are so astonished. Notice they say, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? The reason why they're raising the issue of his messianic uh, nature is because he has just performed a messianic miracle. This isn't just a typical miracle of healing someone who had an ailment. This was a particularly messianic miracle. When we went through the life of Messiah, we spent a great deal of time on this passage. Let me just take a few moments to uh, bring us up to, uh, 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 up to scale on this. Um, the rabbis taught that when the Messiah would come, he could heal an individual who, because of a demon, was not able to speak. Now, the reason why this was particularly a messianic miracle is because the Jewish people in the time of Messiah practiced exorcism. They were casting out demons. And we see this because Messiah acknowledges that later in this same chapter. He says, if I, by the power of Beelzebub, do this, how do your own disciples do this? So Yeshua himself acknowledges that the disciples of the Pharisees were casting out demons. But one kind of demon they could not cast out, and that was the kind of demon that caused the individual not to be able to speak. And the reason why they could not cast out that kind of demon was because the rabbis had a particular method by which they would cast out demons. The method was they would uh, force the demon to tell them its name, and on the basis of their name, or its name, or their name, they would then be able to cast the demon out. Yeshua does this. Remember the man of Gadara? He says to them, who are you? And they say, we are legion, for we are many. And then he casts out all of the demons known as legion, 6,000, or whatever many of demons this man was possessed by. But what the rabbis could do is the very same thing on occasion. But what they could not do was when the individual couldn't speak, they could not get the individual to tell them the name of the demon. So the rabbi said that when the Messiah comes, he's not going to be limited to having to know the name of the demon in order to cast it out. So when he comes, he'll be able to cast out demons with or without names. So here's a man who is mute. 
The rabbis can't cast out this demon because the man cannot speak. But the Messiah just did that. The rabbis taught when the Messiah comes, he's going to be able to do it without the name of the demon. He does it. And the people say, is not this the son of David? Isn't this the one who is doing what you have been teaching us the Messiah would do? Now the rabbis are forced to make a choice. Either they say, yes, he is. Let's bow down and worship him, which they were they did not want to do. And the reason they did not want to do that is because Yeshua rejected the rabbinic interpretation of much of the Mosaic law. And so because of their dispute over the nature of the law and how it ought to be applied in a person's life, they now, rather than acknowledging him as Messiah, reject him as Messiah. But by rejecting him as Messiah, they then need to still explain how it was that this individual cast out this spirit without the name of the spirit, which the rabbi said only the Messiah would be able to do. So rather than acknowledge that he is the Messiah, they said, yes, he did cast out the spirit, but not truly, not actually. This was really the prince of demons who is commanding a lower level demon to release this individual from the torment that he was causing him for whatever reason or for whatever purpose. So rather than to bow before the one who is demonstrating he is the Messiah, they reject him now on the basis that he healed this man by means of a demonic power, the power of the prince of de demons, Beelzebub. So now, and as a result, they commit what's called the unpardonable sin. That is, attributing the work of Messiah to demonic empowerment. It is a sin that could only been committed during the time of Messiah. It's a sin that could only be committed when the Messiah is present doing a miracle that authenticates his claim. It's only a sin that could be, that could be uh, uh, done, or what, what would the word be? Um, performed by the nation as a whole. The unpardonable sin is not an individual sin, like sexual immorality is an individual sin, or stealing is an individual sin. The unpardonable sin is a national sin. It's the sin of the nation of Israel led by its leaders to reject the Messiah on the basis that he did a messianic miracle by means of demons. So no one individual can ever commit this sin. No one individual in this day and age could ever commit this sin. Why? Because it's not an individual sin. It's a national sin, a collective sin. It's the sin of the nation submitting to the leadership of the nation to reject the Messiah on the basis that he performed this miracle by the power of the Prince of Demons. It cannot be a sin committed by us today because it's a national sin. It can't be a sin committed by us today because it must be committed only when the Messiah is actively performing his miracle in demonstrating his Messiahship before the people. Not through his servants or disciples, but he himself. Messiah is not here presently in the world today, physically. Therefore, no one can even possibly commit this sin. This is a sin limited to Israel, 
nationally in the first century when the Messiah was present and when he was accused of doing his miracle, a messianic miracle, by virtue of a demonic power. Is that, is that fairly clear? <laughs> this question comes up all the time, doesn't it? Have I committed the unpardonable sin and therefore I'm... Just, no, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin. But you see how complicated it is. Because people generally look at the Bible as a simple book, but it's really a very complicated book in some parts. Well, this is one of those complicated sections that requires us to understand the Jewish roots of our faith in order to resolve what's going on here. Okay, so let's move forward. So the unpardonable sin has been committed. The Jewish leaders have now said he's doing this by the power of the evil one. The nation as a whole is being led into a state of rejection of the Messiah. So now Yeshua knew their thoughts. And he said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself cannot stand. If the evil one drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people or your disciples, your children, some say, uh, drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom and the Messiah is present. And therefore, the Messiah is present. The kingdom of God is present to some degree. So in verse uh, 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. And so this passage uh, has oftentimes been taken that somehow demons come into a person, they defile the house, and then he's delivered from that person. And then if it's, he's not filled with the good things of God, then the demon will return in greater measure with, with uh, more of uh, those consorts to bind us under um, satan satanic attack. This passage sort of dovetails with Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, where we read that after Peter acknowledges that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, verse 17, Yeshua replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my congregation of believers, my church, my called out ones. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone. Now, let's not worry about verse 20 for a moment, but this idea of whatever you bind, whatever you loose. And so the, the thought is that he's talking about binding and loosen, loosing uh, the work of God on a person's life or binding Satan who is active in a person's life. Now, that's totally false in terms of what this passage is teaching. So here are some of the things that it is teaching. Number one, this idea of binding and loosing is a common expression by the rabbis in the first century. This was not a unique expression to Messiah. 
This was a common expression that the rabbis used. So the question is, how did the rabbis use this phrase, to bind and to loose? They did not use the phrase in terms of binding and loosing the work of Satan in a person's life. It was not used in terms of demonic releasing of individuals or spiritual warfare or demonic confrontations. It wasn't used in that context. Rather, it was used in the context of judicial decisions, legally binding decisions. And notice the context. This is exactly what Yeshua is talking about. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we're going to see an example of how uh, this is done. He's talking about things, whatever things. He's not talking about persons. He's not talking about individuals. He's not talking about uh, angels or demons, which are persons. They're not human persons. They're angelic persons, but they're persons. They're not things. Plants are things. Stones are things. Angels, demons, and human beings are not things. They're persons. They're different kinds of persons. We are human persons. Angels and demons are angelic persons. Angels are angelic persons that have remained faithful to God. Demons are fallen angelic persons that have rebelled against God and therefore are ultimately going to uh, suffer the consequence and the judgment of God for that. But they are persons. That's why when they are dressed, we address the angels in personal terms. Pronouns are used regarding them. Or they have regular names like Michael or like Gabriel. Uh, these are names of individuals. The point is that the phrase binding and loosing has to do with things, not persons. So you can't bind and loose demons or angels. But you can bind and loose, once we understand how the rabbis use this, judicial decisions, which are things. The decisions that we make are decisions about issues. Issues are things. And so this is what Yeshua is referring to. So in the rabbinic context, to declare something forbidden or permitted. If something is bound, it is forbidden. If something was loosed, it was permitted. So if you were uh, bound by the Mosaic law, then you were forbidden to do that which was contrary to the Mosaic law. So to bind meant to forbid. To loose meant to permit. It's also interesting with regard to the verb form that is found here in the Greek tense. It is a, what is referred to as a future perfect tense. So literally, what Yeshua says is, whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. Or whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. That is to say that what 
And remember, this is a privilege that Peter is given. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my congregation. And whatever you, Peter, bind on earth will be bound. And whatever you, Peter, loose on earth will be loosed. The point is that Peter, as the principal disciple of the twelve, and to be the leading apostle in Jerusalem, and to be the distinctive apostle to the Jews, whereas Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, will have the distinct privilege of becoming the catalyst for the good news to begin to be disseminated out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Peter is at each one of those segments in the, God, in the book of Acts. So that when the Jewish people hear the good news for the first time, it is Peter who proclaims it in Acts chapter 2 or so. When the Samaritans are the first to hear it, they hear it by Philip, but it's not until Peter joins Philip and the Samaritans that they receive the Spirit of God in fullness. And it will be Peter who will be the key for Cornelius, the first Gentile in Acts 8, who will be the recipient of the Spirit of God. And it is Peter, again, whom God leads on the scene. So Peter has the distinct privilege of having the keys of the kingdom to unlock the good news, to go forward in the power of the Spirit among the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. And thus he will be the catalyst for permitting the things that God has already established to be permitted, and he will loose those things that God has already established to be loosed. So what Peter is doing in essence, and what the passage is saying is that he's going to perform God's will in unleashing the good news and the work of the Spirit by means of his, um, by means of this judicial privilege. Now, in Acts chapter 15, we get a sense of how the disciples understood this passage. Because this passage, Acts chapter 15, verse 10, underscores how the disciples understood Yeshua's teaching. Because in Acts chapter 15, we have what's referred to as the council at Jerusalem. And this council conveys because Paul has gone out and concluded his first missionary enterprise. And what he has seen and has already been observed earlier, but to a lesser degree, is that Gentiles are embracing the Jewish Messiah in great numbers, while the Jewish people themselves are not. And so the question that was being raised by some during that time is, can Gentiles simply receive God this way without first 
converting, as it were, to Judaism. Do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to fully experience all the good things that are to be experienced in the Jewish Messiah? Now, in our day and age, that seems like, why is that even an issue? And the reason why we see that as a non-issue is because we are 2,000 years removed from when the believing community first came together. So for us, we know that 90-something percent of all the believers are Gentiles. So we just take it as a given. But in the first century, there weren't that many Gentile believers. There were some, like in the Gospels, we read the centurion or the Syrophoenician woman, but they were the exception, not the norm. And even in Acts 2, it is Jews that are responding to Peter and proselytes, individuals who've already converted to Judaism. So they're thinking, isn't that the pattern? You become a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how do you become a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? By becoming a proselyte, or by becoming a God-fearer. One like Cornelius, who's described as a God-fearer. Now, you need to know that there were three stages by which Gentiles identified themselves with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't enough to simply say, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It had to be authenticated, it had to be confirmed. So what you had were stages. And so the first stage of a Gentile who is now going to say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God is one who was thought of as a God-fearer. That's what Cornelius was. He was at the very first stage. He acknowledged that the Roman pantheon of gods were not true. They were false gods. And he recognized there was one God. And that one God is the God of the Jewish people. He was a God-fearer. But if you wanted to move further in your commitment of identification with the people of God, you moved into the second phase. And that was a proselyte at the gate. The gate being the beautiful gate, which was the entrance gate into the temple compound, into the temple area of the court of the women. Because Gentiles were permitted to, to gather in the court of the Gentiles. But then the beautiful gate, which faced east, was the gateway by which you now entered into the temple area proper. And the first area in the temple was the court of the women. So if you were a God-fearer, you were a God-fearer. You were a Gentile that recognized the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the true God. But if you said, you know what, I want to participate in the worship experience in the temple. The God-fearer couldn't. He only could stay in the court of the Gentiles. But if you said, I want to enter into the temple and I want to be uh, more involved in Jewish worship, well, then you went through further reflection and study and preparation, and you became a proselyte at the gate. You're right at the gate, ready to enter, but you're not ready yet. And the last phase was a full-blown proselyte. If you were a man, that meant you were circumcised. And at that point, you were now a full proselyte. And thus, you could enter the temple, 
You can enter the court of the men and worship there, and you are considered a Jew, though by birth you were not. Cornelius was a God-fearer. So with all those things in place, and by Acts 8, you've got God-fearers, you've got proselytes, you have this whole mechanism in place. There were those that felt that is the method by which Jew, uh, Gentiles would be brought into the relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And thus, before they can embrace Messiah and receive of his spirit, they needed to become proselytes. But the problem with that was that Peter saw Cornelius as a God-fearer, not even a proselyte at the gate, let alone a full-blown proselyte, not only receive Yeshua as Messiah, but also receive the fullness of the Spirit just as he had when he was in the upper room praying with the other disciples, 120 in Acts chapter 2. And he saw at Shavuot or Pentecost many proselytes that were experiencing the fullness of the Spirit, but now he saw a God-fearer who was not a proselyte experience all of that. And on top of Peter's example or experience, Paul has just come back from a missionary journey which took him from Antioch of Syria to the island of Cyprus in which he traversed the island by boat and planted a couple of churches and then went up into Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey, and he looped around in the center of that area, not far from his own hometown of Tarsus, and he saw predominantly Gentiles who were rank pagans. They were neither God-fearers nor proselytes at the gate, let alone full-blown proselytes, and they were responding to the good news, and they were receiving the fullness of the Spirit. So while it seemed understandable that Gentiles would need to be converts to Judaism before accepting Messiah. That just wasn't the experience of Peter, the apostle to the, Je to the Jews, and the preeminent apostle among the twelve. And it was not the experience of Paul, whom God had chosen very uniquely by virtue of revealing himself directly to him when he was on his horse going to Damascus and then sent him forth as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so in Acts chapter 15, there's a debate. And they're debating whether or not Gentiles ought to convert to Judaism first. And Peter and Paul are saying, we're already seeing Gentiles experiencing the fullness of the Spirit, so why ought they to have to do this? It doesn't make any sense because despite what we think, Gentiles are still experiencing everything that we might experience as well. Because circumcision comes up in two places in the Scripture. One is in Genesis 17, which is God's sign to Abraham and his descendants. And the sign of the covenant and the sign that you are a member of the covenant was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And thus Abraham was commanded that all of the men 
in his household, including his servants, as well as Ishmael, who was 13 at the time. That's why Muslims circumcised their boys at 13. And Isaac was eight days old. So every male, and Abraham was circumcised when he was, well, how old was he? 108. I don't know. But I know, I know, Jack. <laughs> but the point is, so at Genesis 17 is circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But then it's reiterated in the Mosaic law as an element of the Mosaic law. And because it shows up in these two places, it was a central observance by which Jews were now connected to the covenantal promises that God had made, both in the Abrahamic covenant and in the Mosaic law. What do you mean? Well, being a Jew does not depend upon being circumcised. Being a Jew means you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you failed to live up to the sign of the covenant, it didn't mean you were no longer a Jew, but it did mean that you were um, no longer a one who would necessarily inherit the promises associated with being a Jew. That means outside of the covenant. Right. Okay. But it doesn't mean outside of the nation of people. You know, any more than if you're circumcised, but you but you went ahead and worshipped Dagon or one of these false gods. You may be circumcised, but you're worshipping a false god. So worshipping a false god did not make you any less a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So, okay. So circumcision is very critical uh, observance. And by the way, the Jews weren't the only ones that practiced circumcision. Circumcision was practiced before by the Egyptians, by the, by the Phoenicians, as well as by the Babylonians. I mean, that, this was not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. What God does is he took what was a common practice, specified a particular day in which it had to be performed, and put it within a particular context, the promises he made to Abraham and then later to the nation of Israel through Moses. So this is a, a central facet, particularly in the ancient world in the first century, that, uh, that signified your attachment to God's promises and God's covenant. So in the first century, it, you would think that, well, Gentiles need to experience this too in order to have the sign of the attachment to the covenant. They were really looking for, I would say initially, for that symmetry of experiences. What Paul is saying is, but if you understood what the coming of, of Messiah meant and what the grace of God in Messiah provides, you would then realize that that is not necessary to the experience of the fullness of the Spirit. And so he takes great issue with this. And part of it is borne out not only by his theological sense, but by his experiential sense with what's going on in his ministry.
So now let's get back to what, what we're talking about. This idea of binding and loosing, which means permitting or forbidding a judicial decision. So when you look at Acts chapter 15, that's the context, and that's the debate. And so in Acts chapter 15, it says in verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so that's interesting, there were Pharisees that came to know the Lord subsequent to the time of Messiah's ministry. They stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, it's very important to note, they're looking at circumcision in the context of the Mosaic law, not in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. In the context of the Abrahamic covenant, it's simply a sign of God's covenant promises. In the context of the Mosaic law, it's one of the 613 commandments that now makes you uh, now you're required to obey. That's where Paul gets very upset. Because the moment you start talking about obeying the law in order to be saved, you now are dispelling with grace and you've established a works basis of salvation. And there's no way that Paul will ever acknowledge that or accept that. It is anathema. In fact, he says that in the book of Galatians. Anyone teaches a different gospel than what I have taught you, let them be accursed. That's how serious Paul took this whole idea of what we might refer to as legalism. That in order to experience salvation, you have to obey this, that, or the other. And Paul says that is absolutely false. Salvation is a gift from God that none of us can earn but that God grants it freely that we are to receive by grace through faith without the obedience of the law. Why? Because we can't obey the law. And two, Messiah himself fulfilled the law in our behalf. He has a very high view of Messiah. He is our savior. How so? By fulfilling the law in our behalf. So that therefore we stand righteous before him, not by our own works, but by his work. And therefore he receives all the glory, not willing that any should boast. And thus we can only bow before him in thanksgiving and gratitude. We can never say we earn it, you owe us. He never owes us anything. We owe him everything. And he died in our behalf. He took what we deserved our punishment that we may get what he deserves by his faithfulness and complete obedience to be united with his father and glorified once again. One day we will be united with the Godhead and we will be glorified in a glorified state. That's what Messiah deserves because of his obedience. He suffered for us that we might receive what he deserves. He took what we deserve that we might get what he deserves. That's what Paul wants us to always have in the forefront of our minds. So that our service is a response out of gratitude, not of a means of gaining his favor. So we can never gain his favor any more than we already have it by virtue of what Messiah has done for us. You can pray 24 seven, you will not have any more favor from God than what you already have from him. Because your favor from God is found in him, not in you. When you pray 24 seven, it's out of gratitude 
for what he's already given to us, not to gain something we don't have. No brownie points. It's all grace. If it was brownie points, we would lose them, right? We would lose them in a second because we have all sinned and come short of the brownie points, the, glor <laughs> the glory of God, right? So, uh, okay, so Acts 15, we're coming back to binding and loosing, so we can understand this, right? We'll get there. So, in verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. No, it's okay. I think it's all right. I just feel like I'm in a catacomb, but it's nice. It's a nice catacomb. Um, the apostles and elders met to consider this question after much discussion. And, you know, part of it is just, it's just echoing all over the place. You know, if we had our congregation here, we don't get this. Really? My beer's not that long yet. Okay. So, uh, Peter, uh, so the elders met to consider the question. Should Gentiles be circumcised? After much discussion, you know, like you would think, how, what do they have to discuss? But after much discussion, because this is a brand new thing, much discussion, Peter got up. Why? Because he has the keys of the kingdom. Whatever he binds, it will be bound. Whatever he loose is what's already been bound or loosed in heaven. So he's the catalyst for all this stuff. So Peter stands up and he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips. That's because Peter was the one who's given the privilege of unlocking the good news to Israel, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. That the Gentiles, Cornelius, might hear from my lips the message of the good news and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And they didn't convert. Or they weren't circumcised. He made no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples, disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Yeshua that we are saved just as they. So what has he done? He's made a judicial decision that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. He, in effect, loosed what was already loosed for the Gentiles. That is, they don't need to be circumcised. And he's already forbidden or bound what's been bound in heaven that they are not to be circumcised. No, he says. He doesn't say, well, if they'd like to, it's okay. He says, no, by no means. It is only through the grace of our Lord that we are saved. So this notion that Gentiles should be circumcised, Peter says, no way. Salvation is not dependent upon. If, you're going to be, so if a Gentile wants to be circumcised, he can go through the, the surgical procedure. But it doesn't have anything to do with his relationship with Messiah. Now, for a Jewish person, 
It has no bearing on their relationship with Messiah, but it does have a bearing on their relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, which is what we just said. It doesn't change their status as a Jew, but it does call into question their necessarily receiving the be all the benefits of the covenant. Because it was given to Jews to be circumcised. Now that's in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant. But Jewish believers should not be circumcised in accordance with the Mosaic law. Because that's already been fulfilled in Messiah. So when someone says, should Jews be circumcised or not? Well, you have to ask another question. Are you asking in regard to the Mosaic law or are you asking in regard to the Abrahamic covenant? Because if you're asking in regard to the Mosaic law, no, they shouldn't. Because the law does not, obeying the law is not going to help you in your relationship with God. But if you're asking in relation to the Abrahamic covenant, oh yeah, they should. Because the covenant promises are attached. Or at least that's a sign that you're attached to those promises. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with law. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, are two distinct covenants. One's conditional, one's unconditional. And the, the Mosaic law is one that has been fulfilled in Messiah. We don't have to do anything with regard to it because it's been fulfilled in Messiah. But with regard to the Abrahamic covenant, there may be things we ought to do. And in that case, not Gentiles. Because the Abrahamic covenant wasn't made with Gentiles. It was made with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I only bring this passage out to show as one example of how the disciples, in this case Peter, understood binding and loosing. He understood that to bind and loose something had nothing to do with demons and persons, had nothing to do with uh, sinful actions, has nothing to do with the works of the flesh, that the scripture talks about. And it's interesting that when the scripture talks about the works of the flesh, there's nothing there that says the way to get over lying or stealing or whatever the works of the flesh are listed as. There's nothing there at all that has to do with demons. Demons don't do anything with the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh do enough in and of itself that they don't have to waste their time there. They do other things. If our own uh, sinful self can help us or can help them cause, you know, let me step back. If our own sinful self gets us into trouble with our relationship with the Lord, demons are happy. So they don't do anything there. What they do is they may bring temptations, but we're always going to face temptations. In this world, you will have tribulation. There's no temptation that God will not bring deliverance. We're always going to be tempted. That's not going to ever stop. But it doesn't mean that because you're tempted, the evil one or demons are controlling you or working in you. And because you have a problem with a particular element within yourself or as one of the works of the flesh that um, the scripture talks about, it doesn't mean that that's a, an, a, an area in your life that some demon has control of you in. So, uh, now, Jag, you had a question. Okay. So, um, so this, under, this passage underscores how the disciples understood Yeshua's teaching. Let me just give these three things. Don't lose your thought. So, the first thing is this. The context has to do with the debate over Gentile believers needing to be circumcised. And uh, we talked rather extensively about that. James agrees with Peter. We didn't look at all of that. But later you'll see not only Peter... But James, the brother of Messiah, also agrees that Gentiles should not be circumcised. 
And James does go on to add that the Gentile believers should abstain from idols, sexual immorality, meats that are strangled and offered up to idols, uh, for the sake of fellowship with Jewish believers for whom that would be really weird stuff. But has nothing to do with, um, with their salvation or their relationship with God. So what's going on here? Here the apostles... Here the apostles are exercising this power of binding and loosing. They are forbidding Gentiles from needing to be circumcised. They're loosing Gentiles to have, to simply believe like all the other disciples and the other Jewish believers have believed in experiencing the fullness of salvation. Keep this in mind, there's no record anywhere in Scripture of the apostles or anyone ever uttering the expression, I bind you, Satan, or something of the like. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. And thus the, the apostles did not understand his teaching to mean one can bind Satan through prayers or verbal denunciations or declarations. We don't, can't do that. You, the Bible tells us the way to deal with Satan is not to denounce him, is not to utter statements to him. It is to flee. You know, uh, that's what James says. Flee, resist the devil and he will flee. So my mistake. We are to resist him. It is a battle. It is not a, a declaration. That's why in Ephesians it says, put on the whole armor of God. Nowhere in the armor of God is, and then pray a prayer that says, we denounce you, Satan. We bind you, Satan. It's all about self-discipline that is, and the utilization of the Spirit of God in our lives. You put on the helmet of salvation. We need to think right thoughts. And Paul tells us this. Reflect on good things. Think on right things. That's right. Michael, Michael says that when disputing over the body of Satan, uh, body of Moses, Moses with Satan. But when he says the Lord rebuke you, what what he's saying is that it is not I that can rebuke you. See, most of the time when I see people praying, I say, Satan, we rebuke you in the name of Yeshua. Exactly. Well, that's not what that means. What that means is the Lord himself will deal with you. And he doesn't deal with him. It is, in other words, our attention should not be toward the evil one. Our attention should be toward the Lord who will work his will in the life of an individual on the basis of our prayer and on the basis of their yieldedness to that work. So you resist the devil, he will flee. A great example, by the way, is Yeshua himself. We read in two places, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, that he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness so as to be tested by the evil one. Nowhere does he say, I rebuke you in the name of my name. Nowhere does he say, we denounce you evil one. What he says is, the word of God says, you know, worship the Lord and only him should we uh, worship and praise. He'll say that, uh, uh, what, it is not by bread alone that man lives, but by every word of God. It's not enough to just make denunciations as if the angelic world is frightened of words. I mean, Yeshua himself, uh, excuse me, Satan himself quotes the word of God. 
though he misquotes it. But he's not afraid to state it. He's not afraid to, to recite those words. He's not afraid to lure us into the wrong understanding. He's in the garden where God is, and he um, even contradicts what God has commanded regarding the eating of this fruit. So he's not going to get shaken up because we happen to say certain words. But we ought to be in prayer for one another. Yes, the reaction or the way that God responds to our prayers are things that he's going to very much be concerned about and be fearful of. So um, I just want us to be clear. We want to be effective in our praying. And simply saying we bind you, we loose you, we put a hedge of protection does not pray anything. It's just, it's like, uh, what's the phrase that they use, uh, you know, like in the political debates and stuff? It's, it's like, uh, what's the phrase? Selling points? Not selling points. Spin? Yeah. What? Spin. Yeah. No, not spin. You know, it's sort of like people say, they say the same phrase at, that comes up over and over Buzz. again. Not buzzwords, but I can't remember the phrase that's used. But my, but my whole, the whole thing here is that certain formulaic phrases is what we want to avoid. We want to pray effectively. And that means coming alongside, lifting a concern up, requesting God to intervene in behalf of an individual's need, or giving praise to God for what he has done. We want to focus on God and focus on the need before us or the blessing before us. We don't want to bring the evil one into our worship. And we don't want to bring the evil one into our sphere. You know, he comes uninvited. Why invite him or raise attention to him? So we're, we need to be mindful. One of my favorite books, you may like to read it sometimes, it's a great, great book. Uh, it is called, um, what's the phrase, by, by uh, Dwight Pentecost, called Your Adversary, the Devil. You want to read a really good book on the biblical teaching about the evil one and how to deal with them. Dwight Pentecost, Your Adversary, the Devil, is a great, great book. He is our adversary. We know that. We are to utilize prayer in order to be strengthened for the fight. And we want to come together. But every time a person comes and says, I'm really struggling with lying, there's nothing to cast out. The person has a disciplinary problem in their life, a problem with the flesh, as the scripture would, might say. And we need to pray for them and lift them up and pray that they would gain strength and that they'd have people to come alongside of them and, and help them and hold them accountable for things like that. You know, the evil one doesn't have to do things there. Um, when a person comes and says, I'm going to have surgery or have this illness, have cancer, it's not like they've been struck by the evil one because of that. But rather we want to come and empathize and say, Lord, would you bring healing for this individual? We certainly can lift them up in that way and pray that that healing might take place. Perhaps it will be miraculous. Maybe it will be through the instrumentality of uh, physicians and doctors and medication as well. Don't ever hear 
suggest that people don't take medicine that doctors have prescribed. We're here not to give some kind of medical um, quackery. We're here to pray with people. And we're not even here to give advice. We're here to pray with people. And when there are um, serious issues like that, and whether we're doctors or not, or lawyers or not, it makes no difference. That's not why they came to you. But that's not why they came forward and you happen to be there. They came forward not for advice, but for prayer. They want intervention. They didn't come to get uh, ideas about how you would deal with it. They've come for prayer. They want to connect with God. And you have the privilege to connect them with him. And that is a, a great, great privilege. So Summer, and then uh, Anna, I haven't forgotten you had your hand up. So just a brief summary on this particular point, and then we'll call it. In Matthew 16, binding and loosing refers to whatever things, not whoever. They have to do with decisions about matters, not persons. So Yeshua's words refers to things, beliefs, and actions. And this authority to bind and loose is the authority to declare what is God's mind on a matter of doctrine or practice. It's not to somehow interpose our desire. The Lord will heal you. Well, I can tell you many a time that I've heard people pray that way, and they were not healed. I'll never forget, uh, I, my mother-in-law, she was dying in the, in the hospital, met with her, and um, I can't remember exactly the details of how it transpired. But as we were talking there, she said, I feel like I'm going to die. Others that were in the room previously said, no, no, don't think that way. You're not going to die. Well, how do they know that? You know, I mean, that's like false hope. So when I sat with her, I said, if you were to die, you know God is with you, right? She said, of course. But she was a believer. And you know that if you were to die, that you're going to be with him, right? She said, yeah. I said, so what's so bad about that? She said, you know, there's nothing bad about that. No, there isn't. So let's just pray to him. So we don't want to give false hopes. I know we'd like to say to everyone we could, <clears throat> you're going to be just fine. Everything's going to be taken care of. But you and I know that's just not always true. And some people, they go in for surgery and people mess that up. Some people go in for surgery, they don't come out. And some people go into hospitals and they do die. And I know for many of us, that's a rarity. But as a pastor, I've been around it more often than I would like. And we need to re realize the wages of sin is death. We will all die. And when we realize that and embrace that for ourselves, it's not so hard to talk about it with others because it's going to happen to us too now I know that when we're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 it's a lot easier to talk about perhaps 
perhaps than when you're 80 or 90 because you're even closer. But I can guarantee you this. There have been so many men and women, saints of God, who have walked with him and have loved him. And as they drew closer and closer, they didn't get more fearful. But rather, they became much more comfortable in their relationship with him. That can happen, too. That's not to say that the experience of dying is not something that is, um, you know, an odd, uncomfortable, frightening, maybe too strong a word, but uh, an experience that causes us some trepidation, just like anything else. You know, you know, the first time, like Manny, Sunday, first time he's up here in front of 150 or how many we were, and he's leading the congregation in, in the liturgy. That's a frightening thing. You know, that's a hard thing. Well, the next time it's going to be easier and easier and easier. Now, that's just a little comparison, but the point is none of us have experienced it. So when it comes time for us to experience it, it's like, hey, this is the first time you're ever going to preach a message. This is the first time you're going to sing a song without the words and the notes in front of you. This is the first time you're going, well, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. And there's an element of trepidation and fear that's attached with that which we don't know. So I understand that. I'm not denying that. But there's also a sense that when you have lived a life faithfully before God to the best of your ability, you've walked with Him, that when it comes time to go with Him, there is that feeling of, Lord, please take me. I'm looking forward to being with you. And there can be a peaceful exit and a comfortable exit from this life into the life to come. I've seen that as well. I'll never forget one of the first experiences I had of that when uh, this woman, Carol, I was new to the church in Annapolis, and she was sort of an old-timer with the church, but then left over some issues and then came back and was only with us a short time. So I never got to really know her. But a number of our folks would be over her place. She was at home. She was hospice. She had cancer. And we were over her place cleaning, whatever. And I used to go over there and pray with her. And I remember this last time the hospice woman was in the living room. And I went into the bedroom. She said, I don't know how much more time she has. I don't think it's much longer. So I sat down with her. And she couldn't open her eyes anymore at this point. She was breathing rather laboriously, you know, and I uh, held her hand and I would read scripture, you know, and I could see her eyes sort of fluttering. My dear friend, Bill, who went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, but uh, he was a, a retired captain in the Navy. He was a, um, a health care professional. He worked in the Surgeon General's office with C. Everett Coop in Washington, D.C. He was a public health officer. And I remember when uh, he really helped me understand process of living and dying and a lot of those kinds of issues and uh, would give me insight to some degree as um, as I minister to people and I remember him saying me the last thing to go when a person is dying is their hearing so always be sure that when you're with them though they don't respond just talk with them just speak to them let them know you're here because that's the last sense that goes is hearing Okay, so I went in and held her hand and just read the scripture, you know, and I could see her eyes were fluttering. I took that to me that she could hear me and she was pleased, you know, and then I started singing to her. And I, you know, even though we had done a lot of contemporary songs and things like that, the funny thing for me was I couldn't remember any of those songs. I was remembering all these hymns, 
you know. And then as I was singing these various hymns, you know, parts of them, mix the words up, come back. You know, I don't know. I was just singing away. Um, I saw her taking this heavy breath. And I swear, I'll tell you, I felt like on the, I was, the bed was like here. I was sitting here. And then on the other side of the bed, it was almost as if I sensed, maybe I did sense it, uh, a door had opened. You know, that there was another room here. There was another place. And I felt like I really want to go. You know, I felt like I wanted to get up around the bed and walk through that door. I knew it was there. And she just took this breath and she was gone. And I knew for sure the Lord was right there. You know, it was one of those weird moments that I've never had. Uh, subsequent to that, but I've always had this sense when I've been with people who are dying that there's something very sacred about to happen. And of course, I knew that she was a believer, and it was like I don't know, it was just a, a feeling of real um, smoothness, you know? It was like that's where I want to be, and I just knew that the Lord had come and had taken her, and then she died. Called the person in. I think Carol has just passed. And she came in. Yeah, she did. You know. And uh, that was the first time. Oh, someone set the alarm. Hold on. So that was like, you know, the first time I, I experienced that. So, yes, th there can be that moment of, gee, what's about to happen? But I also think. There's that sense that the Lord said, uh, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again to bring you where I am, that you may be with me forever. You know, and so, um, you know, the Lord, the Lord provides that. So, um, and, uh, and so to bind is to establish an obligation or a command. To loose is to remove that obligation or that command. In this case, the command for an individual to be circumcised was removed. And rather what was uh, provided or established is that purely by faith, an individual can experience. Oh, sorry, sorry, going a little too fast. A little too fast. No, because then, all right, fine. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to make copies. I would have had that, like I said, my computer went down. I apologize for that. So I'm sorry. Uh, next week, we're going to do a thing with uh, spiritual warfare. We'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, it's 9 o'clock now, so we'll call this. But, uh, and then we'll have a time where we can really uh, talk about things, if there are questions and that, that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. But, um, but in any case, uh, and then we just, you know, we'll, we'll pray with one another. And then we'll get together on a regular basis, whether it's every other month or something like that, and just say, how's it all going We'll get some feedback from people to make sure that they're benefiting from what we're doing. We're good? Okay.
And so also remember the, the tense here. What is done has already been done in heaven. So whatever is done is always limited to, um, to Messiah's will and his, uh, his teaching. The phrase does not give authority to make up new teachings later in history. And so in the final analysis, this whole thing about binding and loosing has nothing to do with uh, speaking to the evil one or the demons. All right, Eileen? I'm trying to understand um, or get clarification in theology between different churches and ourselves. To me, this is so crystal clear, and I, I don't understand why there's different theological interpretations among other churches, how they see I'll it. Yeah. Different. I mean, it's totally polar opposite. Mm -hmm. How that comes about. Well, there are, there are a variety of reasons for it, really. Uh, most are experiential in nature. You know, they've prayed for things, they've commanded things, and they've seen things happen as a result. So they conclude this must be what uh, is going on. And so it becomes an experience-driven type theology rather than what is the Word of God teaching. Um, I think there are emotional issues connected with it. Uh, people find solace or in knowing that, gee, I guess I'm not, it's not my fault I'm like this, but there are, there are demons at work in me, and if, uh, if I can just get them off my back, maybe I'll be able to deal with this thing. And that's, that's another kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, now this is the cynic in me, but I also think people take advantage of other people this way. You know, people take advantage of other people this way. They manipulate them. They, they retain power over them. And they use these kinds of things to control people, um, to show that they are wiser, better, stronger, more insightful. People think they really can tell what's in a person's mind. The Bible's very clear. I mean, scripture says he's the only one that knows what's in every man's heart. Yet how many times do you hear people say, I know this is what you need and I'm praying for you and I'm casting this out of you because that's what's in you. I mean, this is, these are power trips. And they're ways in which people manipulate others, control others, uh, exhibit power over others. And we have to be very very careful of that. I can tell you stories. You know, you know, I used to be, as you know, a missionary among the Jewish people. I've spoken at so many churches of all different backgrounds. You know, uh, language different. You know, I've been in Haitian churches where they've translated for me in Creole. I've been in black churches where, you know, I had to preach uh, two hours. You know, <laughs> they say, brother, that's too short. You know, come on, get up there. Really, I um, Some of my favorite experiences, of course, are in black churches. Once you get into the groove, it, it can be great. But um, I've been in a lot of churches. I'll never forget when I was at a women's glow meeting. And, you know, they are a very Pentecostal body of women that wanted to hear about Jewish things. I was happy to share with them. 
And, but invariably in these Pentecostal circles, have you ever spoken in tongues? Have you ever been filled with the Spirit? Have you ever been baptized with the Spirit? You know, you go through all this stuff. Uh, eventually I learned to say, yeah, 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 let me go home. You know, <laughs> even though the answer is really no, 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 and I don't really want to deal with this. But uh, it's not exactly that. But, uh, but I'll never forget, I, I think it was a Women's Glow meeting or it was a full gospel Christian businessman. I've been to all these things. So... It's not like, you know, people think that you don't, you've never experienced this. Well, I have. You know, I have. And I'll never forget, there was a time when guys said, let's pray for Gary who received the Spirit. So I said, okay. So I said, let me just, I'm like this. There's no way I'm going down unless it is by the power of God. No one's pushing me down. No one's going to, you know. I said, they're going to pray for me. Okay. So I, I just started my And they're putting their hand. And I'm telling you, they're, they're doing this. You know, there's no way I'm going. As long as that, I just stood there and said, keep praying for me, keep praying for me, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and that was it. Why? Because a lot of this stuff is purely that. It's a power trip. Uh-huh. They, you know, people want to think that they can have you do what they want. Uh, now, there are also those individuals, and don't misunderstand me, that mean the best for us. Um, I mean, I have friends that would differ with me on a number of issues regarding the Pentecostal world, you know, and experiences. But they're never like that. They're never like that, you know. Um, they've never looked at me as being deficient because I differ in my understanding of this. You know, I'm not saying that there aren't reasonable, God-fearing, loving people who are Pentecostal, but they're not like that, you know. Um, they're very gracious in the fact that we see through a glass darkly, but you have to have convictions. And what I'm sharing with us here, these are our convictions here at Beth Ariel. So, you know, another church or whatever, they may believe in different things. But um, we also have to, people need to know, what do we believe about those things here? What are our convictions here? Distant throughout the congregation. Absolutely. And it can't just be, well, I'll do this because I know that's what you want me to do. But then when I go out here, I'm like that. You know, that, that, that's dishonest. You know, I'm not saying everybody has to believe as I say. But if you're going to be in this ministry team, you do. I mean, people can come in here and not believe in Yeshua. I'm not going to tell them leave. But if they want to be members here, they do. If they want to be considered part of our family, they do. And so similarly, if, if, you, uh, if individuals want to be part of our ministry and have to serve, we have to be on the same page, because we do. Yeah. We, there, there are places where there's disag- there can be disagreement. Can't be disagreement about that. You know. Okay, uh, so let me do this. Since it's after nine, I know people need to get going. Let me just close in prayer, but I'll but I'll talk. Saying what they say, you had said you didn't know how they do that. Because I come from the church, so from the church perspective, they come from the fact that it says we're in red. Jesus saying Yeshua. Uh Greater things shall you do, because I go to the Father. You cast out demons. 
You lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. So that's where that's stemming from. So people who are taught like that, like myself, being a type of person who has an inner strength in my faith in Father God, sure. I'm going to come out, you know, be healed. Versus, now I want you to be healed. <laughs> right. Right. But my faith is very strong in God's word, but it stems basically in the church teachings mm -hmm. that okay. when he says, you know, in my name, I give you the authority, the authority in my, use my name, the authority in my name. Yeah, but and that's where they that. do that, but it says in, in, the, in the writings yeah. that he'll yeah. say, but that's where it kind of basically I mean, stems. In, in the Great Commission, it says all authority has been given unto me, but he doesn't say, and I give it all to you. It just in there. There's I can I can't call right out, but that's what they teach in the church. That's, that's what, what teach, I'm saying. That's how it's, that's how people who are in the church who don't know as far as their Christianity stems from Judaism, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then they're thinking that that just pertains to them and the Gentile, and they get carried away. Yeah. Well, I do think that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a carried awayness. You know, I admit it. <laughs> well, we I stand corrected because yeah. I've never been taught what I've been taught since I've been here at Beth Ariel. This person is coming from the church and being understanding where I even stem from. Sure, sure. That's a good point. That's a good point. We're ready to pray. And then if others want to stick around for a little bit and talk, I'm happy to do that too. But, Father, oh, Annie, you had a question before. Yeah, I just wanted you to give an example, like based on the binding and loosing that you gave us today, or the summary. Would you mind right now, bind and loose something, according to your description of binding and loosing? Go ahead. Bind and loose something. Well, give me an example. Well, what do you, you know? I would, the example I would give, first of all, what I was saying is that's something that, I think specifically in Matthew 16, it's something that was given, the privilege was given to Peter to do that. That's why I said the keys of the kingdom were given to him, and whatever he bound, whatever you, he's saying to Peter, you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven, and, and etc. So I gave an example in Acts 15 to show a, a context in which Peter did bind the idea that a Gentile would need to be circumcised. Peter does that. Right now, in the 21st century, we are not supposed to bind or lose anything. Uh, well, anything. that's interesting, because I've been reflecting on that. So let me just step back a moment. What I share with you is, is where I think we're really all safe. It's something relevant to Peter, and Peter, we see, does it. Now you ask me something I've been thinking about. I would say this. When in Matthew 18, where it talks about an individual, individuals that have conflicts, and they go and the person doesn't respond to that, you know, to the accusation, and you bring a, a witness with, to it, and now they still don't respond, and it says you get the elders. Now the elders will make a judicial decision. And I think to the degree to which they have done their due diligence, they're still fallible, can make a mistake, that's for sure, because we're human beings. But the degree to which the elders now have been called in and they make a judicial decision, they can excommunicate a person from the congregation. And that's a binding of that person, a forbidding of that person to come to this congregation anymore. 
or to forbid people to have fellowship or interaction with. So I think that may, you know, I, that may be a context in which this also uh, would fit. I think it's an apostolic authority that Jesus is giving to Peter, and, and by implication, the others. The other apostles. The others. At that time, with the yeah. nascent church, because there were a lot of things that had to be established, mm -hmm. and they were getting their sea legs, and they needed some judicial authority. Judicial had status. to have it at that time. Yeah. And don't forget, it was still possible, in my opinion, until Acts 28, for the nation to corporately repent. It was still okay. possible. Uh, that's why it says in Acts 3.20, pray that God sends Jesus and he will come. And had the nation repented, we would not have had, in my opinion, the church age. Right. But getting back to that thing, so either it could be limited to the early apostles in the first century, but if you're pressing me, on, you know, right now, I, w I would say that in that kind of, of conflict where the elders are brought in, then um, where the elders do their due diligence and, uh, and follow the Messiah's lead in terms of trying to help resolve something, and it's unresolvable, say, and it requires an excommunication of one thing for the other, he says that, or it leads to the uh, reconciliation, I think in that context we are seeing a judicial decision being made. What's that? Kind of what it says here in the, um, it says handling God, uh, problems God's way will have an impact now and for eternity. So okay. just doing things like uh, God's guidance and seeking resolve conflicts like you just said. Okay. So that, if that fell is sort of understanding my, or what is Right. Is that helpful? Yeah. We good? All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. Um, these are controversial issues and controversial subject, but Father, we need to be on the same page. We need sometimes to face controversial issues and to gain clarity. And perhaps we haven't done that completely tonight, but maybe we've made a pretty good step in the right direction. So we pray for your wisdom, your understanding, and that, Father, your word would be unfolded and made clearer and clearer to us as we study it, investigate it, and uh, engage it. So we give you all praise, honor, and glory, and may your blessing rest on Beth Ariel, and may we be moved by the truths of your word to be becoming more prayerful and more fervent as ones who are praying. We ask him size. Blessings on you guys. Thanks for coming. Yep. And